The Charlotte Post 2023 Newsmaker of the Year is a fierce champion of housing affordability. My name is Herb White, and this is In Other Words. It's Friday, December 15, 2023. Welcome to the podcast. Sharice Blackman is a community activist of the best kind. She makes it her job to help people find affordable housing and to fight off the ravages of gentrification in Charlotte's urban core. She's the executive director of the Westside Community Land Trust, a six-year-old organization that has grown into a major player in Charlotte's housing affordability community. She's also the Charlotte Post Newsmaker of the Year for 2023. The Post has named a Newsmaker of the Year since 1990, when then U.S. Senate candidate Harvey Gantt was named as the very first. All kinds of folks from all walks of life have been selected. Preachers, activists, ordinary folks. We've even named an organization, the Charlotte Hornets, as a Newsmaker of the Year. But this is Sharice Blackman's year. I had a chance to interview her and get an idea of the kind of person she is, the work she and the Land Trust are doing, and what the future of affordable housing looks like in Charlotte. As Newsmaker of the Year, you're part of an illustrious list of uh, Charlotte teens who've done great things uh, since we started the first Newsmaker of the Year uh, initiative in 1990. So that's a long list of people who have done really good stuff in this city. And uh, yeah. you know, it's great to have you join the number. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh! And I looked at the list of names, and I was like, "And they wanted little old me." Why not? Julie Chambers, um, Harvey Gant, but yeah, it's a, it's a very illustrious list, and I'm grateful to be included. It means a lot. Thank you so much. Oh, it's our honor. Uh, so let's just jump right on in. Now, the reason that you were uh, nominated is because of your work in alleviating affordable housing shortages in Charlotte Mecklenburg. And it's an ongoing thing. I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> so uh, w I guess first question is, uh, where are we in terms of affordability and the work that you're doing with Westside CLT? Yeah, so... Um I think there's, you know, a very real, but also very bleak reality that we are still in an affordable housing deficit. And um, that deficit continues to grow, especially as um, units that were once affordable become more and more less affordable. Um, and so I think there was like an article I was reading at one point that mentioned something about for every unit of housing, affordable housing that's created, there are two units that shift from being um, affordable to no longer being affordable. 
So it almost is as if, you know, no matter how many units we create, there's still this other shift that's happening, which is why, you know, the approach needs to be one that is dynamic and includes both preservation and um, the development. So we still are in affordable housing crisis of sorts. Um, we are still short over um, 30,000 units of affordability. Um, but we are hopeful that um, as our city continues to grow, as they continue to renew their commitment to affordability, um, and as leaders remain committed to this work, um, that we will continue to develop and preserve and create opportunities um, for housing. So there is a lot that's happening. On the land trust front, I think when um, I first engaged with you guys, we were earlier on in our um, development as an organization. We started as a concept. Neighbors wanted to fight back against gentrification and displacement. Um, we didn't have very much capital. We didn't have very much buy-in. Um, but throughout our short tenure of about six years of being in existence as an organization, I am really proud of what we have accomplished. We started out trying to create one house. <laughs> we started out with one lot um, that a board member purchased and held for us. And we now are at 162 affordable units that have either been created or um, are in process. And that exponential growth to me just demonstrates what's possible when you're working in and with um, communities to really do something meaningful in a different way. You know, the cynic would say, you know, with your first uh, statement about the widening gap in terms of affordability, the cynic would say, you know what, give it up. It's never going to happen. It is not going to go in that particular direction in Charlotte. The place is growing too fast. Too many people are moving here. Let the market forces sort it out. Why do you keep pushing back on that in terms of, you know, there's a different way that the city can and should go. Yeah, because I truly believe that we have the power to shape and create our own destiny. I think that we have seen historically that there hasn't always been a lot of hope for um, for a variety of groups, particularly, you know, black and brown people. There hasn't been um, a lot of hope as far as the challenges that we have faced um, systemically, the injustices that we have experienced. But that doesn't mean that we um, don't continue to fight. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to press. Um, even when we look at other industries and other uh, models, there are ailments, there are illnesses, there are diseases that are considered um, incurable. That doesn't mean we stop looking for a cure, because the fact of the matter is we realize and recognize that there is a cure out there. And with the right amount of effort and with ingenuity and with um, dedication and commitment and persistence and tenacity and skill, we can accomplish what seems to be impossible. And so I really truly um, believe that as we continue to push for this, as neighbors, those that are most proximate to the challenges, continue to come up with and develop solutions, that we will see um, a shift in our city. I don't think that it will be easy. Um, there's definitely going to be, you know, challenges that are at play, which we experience day, uh, from day to day. Um, but I think that as long as we remain persistent, and um, we can accomplish our goal. And when you talk about the 
exponential growth of the land trust. You know, you talk about going from one house on one line to 162 in six years. That's pretty significant, especially because, you know, land is finite. When you run out of that, there is no more. You're not making new land, but you can make new housing. Uh, so what is the secret sauce that the land trust has been using to get to this point? Is it just more buy-in from around the city on the corporate side, the government side, the nonprofit side? Or is it just the, you know, people are starting to develop the will to say, well, maybe we need to do more about this? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. And I think that... Um we have seen, we've experienced definitely more buy-in from um, our community, like both internally and externally. So we've had neighbors and residents and such that are, you know, partnering and working more with our organization. But um, that has always been pretty strong for us. What we hadn't had much of in the past was as much external support, like from local government and such. And this year we received a seven-figure investment from both the county and the city. Um, and so definitely more buy-in. Um, I, I will say I think that, you know, will is, um, is extremely important. It's critical to this work because you can have as many resources as you want. If there's no will, then um, those resources won't be allocated um, in, a, in a meaningful and impactful way. And so I think that there's definitely intention. There's definitely goodwill um, within our community as well that has coupled um, together to support us with achieving our growth. Um, but I also think that the innovative um, nature of our work and the way in which we have um, developed a truly community-centered model um, is also a great selling point um, for this work. I think that community members um, buy in more. I think when people have something to hope for and have something to believe in, then they invest, they invest their time, they invest their energy, they invest their talents. Um, and I think that as we continue to create a culture and, and shift our culture to be one that is focused on community, um, community-centered responses and community needs and community and resident-led initiatives, um, then we will continue to see more support. Um, and lastly, as a part of that innovative model that we're pioneering here, we also have a good, you know, um, business, uh, a good um, business reason. I can't think of the word I'm trying to use. Um, but anywho, so we have a good, um, our approach is a good and viable approach and that it creates permanent and perpetual affordability. So we're offering a large, you know, social return on investment, whereas other conventional, more conventional affordable housing um, models have a limited um, return with 15 and 30 year deed restrictions and stuff. We're talking about you make an investment today and that unit, that property, that piece of land is preserved forever. And so who wouldn't want to make that type of investment, you know? Um, but yeah, it took some time to start to get the buy-in. It took some time to, to get um, and to cultivate more will um, as far as leveraging 
capital and resources to support this type of effort. Um, but I think that all of those things work in tandem to um, to push us forward. Now you you mentioned the uh, support of uh, of local government. And I guess you know the the really big one, at least recently, was the thirty two units that. Uh, a Mecklenburg County grant, $6 million, I guess it was, that allowed you to buy those homes and add them to the stock. How big of a deal is that? And can you uh, see where perhaps the land trust can start to duplicate those types of chunk purchases where you're getting bigger amounts of land that you can preserve and turn into affordable housing? Well, yeah, so that is our goal. That was that was a very significant acquisition and a very significant partnership. I can remember when um, we were, you know, trying to create an initial proof of concept house. And at that time, you know, we created a strategic business plan and budget. And it made great business sense to purchase the house and renovate that house. We unfortunately didn't have the resources to be able to buy a house and land, you know. So we had a house donated. We had somebody who purchased a piece of land at cost and held it for us until we could afford to buy it. And to go from that to now being able to purchase 32 properties at one single time is just massive. Um, for our organization and for the preservation really of that community. Um, and of course, in an ideal world, those are the types of acquisitions we would want to make all the time. There is significant pressure. Gentrification and displacement is occurring rampantly. When I started with the organization five years ago, we were in a much different space than we're even in now. The cost of construction, the cost of land, the amount of units that are turning over, even with uh, even post-COVID, even with uh, almost 8% interest rate, we still see there's been you know a slight decline, but it hasn't been a significant decline um, in the amount of homes and such that are selling and that are being developed. And so there is significant pressure for us to purchase as much as possible right now before we don't have the ability to be able to purchase. And so acquisitions like the Hoskins acquisition, where we were able to come in and purchase 32 properties at one time is really what we need um, to be able to move forward with creating and sustaining um, perpetual impacts in our communities. For an organization like this, it, like, I'm assuming you got to find some creative ways to do things and get stuff done. Nobody is exactly born or necessarily even trained to do this type of work. What is your backstory? How did you come to be in the position that you're in? Uh, just a little bit of your history that led you to this place in this time. Yeah, so I'm a native Charlottesian, um, born and raised here, born to Samuel Blackman and Vanessa Blackman, my mom, who is now deceased. Uh, my mom's family still lives. Um, in West Charlotte, in University Park, um, back behind West Charlotte High School. So I spent quite a bit of time there um, as a child growing up. I attended Northwest School of the Arts on Baby's Four Road from 6th grade to 12th grade. So I've been on the corridor for um, quite a bit of time. I have always been um, very, how do, how do I want to describe myself? I've always been very interesting individual, especially as a child. I've always been an advocate um, and empathetic. I've always been compassionate 
And I have never been one to be okay with sitting on the sidelines. I don't back down from a fight. I'm not fearful um, of confrontation. And I realized, um, you know, through my life's experiences, I realized through um, great mentors and teachers um, that there's a lot of challenges that we face as a people. Um, and there's a lot of systems that have been put into place to um, try to continue and perpetuate um, the outcomes of those challenges. And so um, it is necessary, it is more than necessary, it's critical, it is emergent that um, we remain willing and open to be disruptive. And so a lot of my adult life has been committed to working towards being a change agent, um, to finding comfort in discomfort and um, fighting battles that, you know, are not necessarily easy to, to fight um, and oftentimes very challenging. But I feel very fulfilled in the end to be able to advocate for and with and show up in and with um, community in ways that demonstrate our power as um, as a people. And so um, early on from being a child, telling my parents who we needed to buy what for, <laughs> who needed to come over our house, trying to create, um, coming up with vision, uh, business ideas, I mean, and envisioning business ideas and such, um, all the way to going to school to pursue um, a master's in nonprofit management, working in Title I um, schools, serving children and families impacted by incarceration, and growing my skill set and knowledge base as a nonprofit um, leader um, has led me to this place of where I am today. Um, and then seeing, just being in close proximity with those families, to see the challenges that they were experiencing each and every day that were outside of their control, seeing children that are homeless in this place because they can't reunify with their loved one that's coming back from prison because of legal discrimination that happens in housing all across the nation each and every day. And realizing that that's not okay, you know, um, when you're trying to figure out where this child is going to sleep at night um, and what they're going to eat, what can they eat, what can they prepare when they're living in a car or when they are um, doubled up in an apartment and when they can be thrown out at any moment and any point in time. It just really um, reinvigorates the level of commitment that I have. It really increases my passion because I believe that this work is um, is greater than me and I'm just grateful that um, that God has allowed me the opportunity to be able to serve in this capacity and to achieve and accomplish some great wins with some amazing, strong, and resilient people. How much street cred does the, your background give you when you're talking about accomplishing what you're trying to do, especially in communities where, you know, maybe people look at you a little funny if you are coming in as an outsider. And it's like, well, do people that you come across that you're trying to help, you know, do they look at you and say, well, you know what, she's one of us. She grew up here and on and on. And does that make it easier to convince folks in the community that, you know, this is legit stuff and you're trying to help people and make changes? that's helpful um there's still a level of mistrust within our communities 
even for people that were born and raised here that look like me, that look like us, because those have unfortunately also been people that have um, not always honored their intention or their, you know, the good intention that they presented when they came into communities. Um, and so there's still a level of mistrust, I think, and I think Maya Angelou said something to the um, sort of, um, people will not remember what you did for them, but they will remember how you made them feel. I don't, I think I butchered that. I'll have to look it up before we get outside to have the right recording. Um, but people, um, oftentimes don't remember what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. And, um, I think that when you operate from a place of authenticity, when you truly care for other people, um, and when they can see through your actions that you practice integrity, um, and that you're going to deliver on what it is that you say you're going to do, then that gets the buy-in and that produces the street credit. And I think that that has been the most helpful is just, you know, from day one, when I started with this organization, we set out, we have several values that we, um, that we've crafted and that we live by. But one of them was we said, we are going to do what we say we're going to do. We're going to not um, perpetuate the status quo. We're not engaging the community to say we engage the community to check a box. We're gonna do things differently. We're gonna listen to people and we're gonna do what they say they want us to do. And so that is something that I have lived by. That is something that our organization has made decisions based on. We stand on that and showing up the way people need us to show up. And I think that as we have developed that reputation, then that has produced the street cred for us. Um, and that gives more of the buy-in. And so even when we're going into new communities, because now we're expanding beyond the West Side, we have an East Charlotte community that we are working with now. We have one of their residents that is serving on our board. Um, and when I went into that community to meet those neighbors for the first time, of course they were hesitant. But shortly after engaging, shortly after hearing about, oh, you guys did this thing on West Boulevard. How did that come to um, come to pass? Oh, you guys did this thing in Hoskins, or you know, then that created more of the buy-in because there there were there was fruit for them to to look at and to see um, who we are and um, and to really um, gauge our character. In many ways, what you're doing with the land trust is disruptive. Uh, when you look at market forces, market forces says that housing should be as expensive as it needs to be in order to fo- you know have folks get their money. And if you can afford it, great. And if you can't, well, that's not our problem as developers, builders, etc. You have to have a certain mindset to disrupt, right? Yeah, definitely. And I don't even think it's market forces. I think it's capitalism. We could have a different market if we had a different value system. Mm-hmm. But this is the one we're stuck with. This is the one we have, right. So, yeah, the idea of capitalism. And there's, man, I wish I could remember this quote. But one of my partners, Jamal Knart, went on a trip um, out of the country to Europe. And um, during his trip, he saw where they were like training um, youth who wanted to serve in government, who wanted to serve in nonprofits. They were teaching them how to be um, responsible citizens. And one of the quotes that they had up, and I hope I don't butcher this one, um, 
was something to the effect of, for many people, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. And it is that thinking where we're not willing to consider or to implement different ideologies and models, even in the system that exists, we can still be collective. We can still be cooperative. We can still be collaborative. We can still leverage those types of approaches. And that is disruptive because there's a lot of incentive to keep things as they are. There's a lot of incentive to maintain and perpetuate and even build and sustain the status quo. But what happens when we consider a future, when we consider possibilities different than where we currently are and where we currently reside? And I really think that's what the land trust model does. Like how can we consider shared equity? How can we consider community wealth building, not individualized, um, capitalistic Eurocentric wealth building that we've been taught from day one, but how can we consider building wealth together and doing it in a way where we all have enough and are able to live in abundance? And, and that doesn't mean we need the government to do it. That does, you know, that just means that we have to consider shifting our thinking to, to be able to show up for ourselves and each other um, in the best possible way. Our thanks to Sharice Blackman, the 2023 Newsmaker of the Year at the Charlotte Post for taking the time to speak with us about her work, the land trust, and housing affordability in Charlotte. Great conversation, uh, great work they're doing, and we are honored to give her her flowers uh, with Newsmaker of the Year. We are also honored that you took part of your day to listen to this podcast. And we appreciate your support for all of our platforms, our website, social media, podcasts, video, all that stuff. And we ask that you continue to do that as we start to make the turn towards 2024. And for everyone at the Charlotte Post, thecharlottepost.com, everything that we're involved with, my name is Herb White. Thanks for listening.